Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, we're talking about Robert Mueller and the Mueller Report. And our guest is Garrett Graff. He has a very interesting new piece in Scribd.com. It's called Mueller's War, and it's about Mueller's service in the Vietnam War. It's fascinating insights into Robert Mueller, the person, and what that can tell us about the Mueller report and what happens next. He's also a bit of a Muellerologist, and he's written extensively about the special counsel's report and his investigation and what to see next. Talking Mueller and the Mueller report next on It's All Political. Derek Graff, welcome to It's All Political. You're in Burlington, Vermont, correct? I am. Is Bernie Sanders outside the window right now? Uh, he is not, but there is still snow and ice. So oh. <laughs> uh, it is still winter up in this neck of the woods. Excellent. First of all, how, tell us how, how much time you spent with Mueller, because he's not a, a guy who, you know, is talking, uh, he shows up on The View or talking to, uh, you know, uh, Barbara Walters, this is not a, a warm and fuzzy guy. How did you connect with him and how did you uh, get to spend time with him? And you spent about 15 or 20 hours with him, right? Yeah. So I got interested in Bob Mueller in the spring of 2008. Um, I was a, a editor at the time at Washingtonian Magazine in D.C. And, and at the time, what I was interested in was he was the last national security official in the U.S. government still in the same job from 9-11. That, um, as we sort of now remember, he started as FBI director on September 4th, 2001, uh, one week before the wow. 9-11 attacks. Yeah. On the morning of September the 11th, he was actually sitting on in the seventh floor director's conference room in what was his first briefing on Al-Qaeda and the bombing of the USS Cole when aides interrupted to say that the World Trade Center had been hit. Hmm. And in 2008, uh, when I was setting out to write a profile of him, he, you know, he had outlasted everyone else in the U.S. government. I mean, multiple CIA directors, multiple attorneys general, multiple presidents. Uh, you know, he was on the cusp of, of carrying over into the next administration. Um, you know, multiple DHS secretaries, a department that had uh, only been formed after he started. Mm. And of course, in, in 2008, we thought he was sort of on the glide path towards the end of his 10-year term in 2011. He ended up getting extended for an additional two years by a 100 to 0 Senate confirmation vote in 2011 and ended up serving through 2013 as FBI director, the longest serving FBI director since J. Edgar Hoover himself. Uh, and, uh, and I just sort of found him this, you know, fascinating energizer bunny of national security, um, to have outlasted everyone else. Right. And it speaks to the bipartisan respect he has. It's some, I mean, he, this guy is a unicorn at, at this, uh, at this time of our politics, someone who is universally respected. Uh, absolutely. And now that he has found uh, no provable collusion, he's even back to being respected by Donald Trump himself. <laughs> yes, he, he was. Trump may have been the last holdout on that. So getting back to, to your uh, your piece, uh, uh, Mueller's War, uh, 
Moore is an, an unlikely Marine. He grew up uh, wealthy in Philadelphia. He went to uh, private prep school, Andover Prep. He went to Princeton. But when he went to school, it was uh, he was a, of a generation, you write, that was raised by guys who served in World War II, that, that sort of that greatest generation. And he uh, adopted that. And uh, he went to Princeton from 62 to 66. And there was still sort of a... Um, a noblesse oblige, if you will, of, of public service and sense of duty to your country, and uh, and and he won. He joined the Marines because of a friend of his, David Hackett. Tell us about about that. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and I think that this is one of the most interesting and formative chapters of Robert Mueller's life because uh, he did not have to serve in Vietnam. He graduated before the draft lottery kicked in. And was, uh, you know, coming from a wealthy family in the Northeast with uh, out of a good college in Ivy League school, Princeton. And he presumably could have gone on and done anything other than join the military. Um, but he not only ended up joining the military, but he, he joined, uh, you know, what is by many measures in Vietnam, one of the toughest assignments in the entire Vietnam War, which was the Marine infantry. And he was inspired by uh, David Hackett, who was uh, a couple of years ahead of him on the Princeton lacrosse team, who himself had graduated, joined up uh, and enlisted in the Marines and been dispatched to Vietnam. And that model of service uh, was something that really inspired Muller and a couple of other classmates to follow David Hackett uh, into Vietnam, um, and Mueller spent uh, Mueller sort of turned out to discover that he was exceptional at, at being a Marine. Um, he graduated at the top of Officer Candidate School um, and was one of the only Marines in the entire country who was sent on to Army Ranger School, um, which is the army school that is the, you know one of the government's uh, one of the military's most severe and prestigious survival schools um, from there he did so well that he actually went on again to army jump school and was trained as a parachutist before finally in november 1968 was dispatched to lead a platoon in Hotel Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marine Regiment in, uh, in Vietnam, right along the demilitarized zone. Um, and, and a point of, point of history here, 1968 was uh, the, the pinnacle of the U.S. involvement in Vietnam, correct? Half a million folks in country. Uh, and back home, the protests are rising, uh, and, and this is a this is the the pinnacle of the war, correct? Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that really makes Mueller's service so remarkable. Is uh, as you said, this was fall 1968, the the high point of the U.S. Uh, ground commitment to Vietnam. There were a half million Americans on the ground in uh, in Vietnam. And Mueller's Marine Maneuver Battalions, these battalions arrayed along the demilitarized zone that, uh, with North Vietnam, the ones that were fighting 
the North Vietnamese army, not the guerrilla Viet Cong, but the regular North Vietnamese army, were engaged in some of the fiercest combat that we saw in the entire Vietnam War, that of those 500,000 American troops, fully 80% of all of the casualties nationwide were coming from just the 25,000 Marines in those maneuver battalions. So this was incredibly fierce fighting, uh, incredibly intense combat against, uh, you know, really a regular army. So, I mean, these were not jungle ambushes. These were engaged, sustained battles with sometimes 100, 200 North Vietnamese troops. Mueller's uh, attitude for this was extremely positive. His the, his role model, his inspiration to join the Marines, David Hackett, uh, I don't want to give away too much of the story, but he died. Um, and uh, But Mueller tells you that he knew he'd make it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Mueller, um, you know, never uh, says that he never doubted that he would make it. Um, but, you know, he was in a unit that uh, the leaders turned over pretty regularly. He had been, uh, you know, this was not like... Uh, you know, what we think of as sort of modern military deployments where a unit trains together stateside, deploys for a year together, and then comes home together. Sort of people were rotating in and out, sometimes on a daily basis due to casualties, due to, um, you know, the end of scheduled deployments, due to illnesses, due to injuries. And so this was uh, a, a a unit that he was inheriting that had been through many, many leaders uh, already that year, including actually one of his previous classmates, uh, Phil Kellogg, who had been uh, the platoon commander just before him. Uh, and then they sort of meet on this mountaintop in Quang Tri province and Kellogg hands him the platoon. They overlap for a day or two and then Kellogg gets on a, helicopter and flies out and Mueller is left to his own devices. Wow. And so he says to you that at, at that point, you know, he is a guy who is fresh out of training school. These other guys have been there for months and months. They've, you know, in combat, he is, uh, as we said earlier, here's an Ivy league guy, uh, came from a wealthy family. A lot of the guys he's leading are high school graduates there's initially some skepticism about him, correct? Yeah, and, and, and rightly so. There was skepticism with good reason. Um, these uh, officer candidate school officers uh, were known as gold brickers um, for the gold uh, square or you know gold brick on, on their lapels that denoted their rank as a second lieutenant. And this was something that they were quite, uh, that, that troops sort of knew to be wary of. These people had not been in combat before. Um, you didn't necessarily know how they would handle under pressure. And Mueller proved himself very, very quickly to be an able commander uh, and one who was actually quite respected and quite well liked by his men. When did that happen? There was a particular battle where he sort of proved his mettle. Yeah, so he arrived in country in November uh, 1968, early November, and in on December 8th, his unit was one of a number of units from the 2nd Battalion committed 
to retake a hill known as Mudder's Ridge. This was a hill along the DMZ, one of the highest points along the DMZ, that was one of those hills that the U.S. fought over for almost the entire decade of the Vietnam War. Um, there was a large battle on Mudder's Ridge uh, the year before. Uh, Oliver North, actually, the Iran-Contra figure, yes. would fight his own battle on Mudder's Ridge the following year in 1969. But the November, the December 1968 battle was Mueller's battle atop Mudder's Ridge. Wow. And on December 11th, uh, his his platoon and hotel company was raced into battle to help rescue an ambushed unit uh, that had whose uh, commander had been killed and, and shot down and then sort of they were trapped uh, on on Mutter's Ridge. Muller's unit raced into battle. They get to the top of Mutter's Ridge and are themselves hit by heavy fire. And ultimately, uh, three of Muller's Marines are killed in battle. One of them, uh, Muller actually helps rescue um, a mortally wounded Marine that Muller went out and rescued and brought back to American lines. And he ended up receiving the Bronze Star with Valor for his actions on Mutter's Ridge that day um, as, as a calm and collected uh, leader who helped sort of save his own uh, unit and, and protect his men. Um, and and the, the remarkable thing that I tell in this story is that, as I said, he received the Bronze Star for rescuing a mortally wounded Marine. But I actually discovered in the course of, of this piece that he actually rescued two Marines. And I tracked down the second Marine uh, who is alive in Texas and he told me this story of uh, when he and Johnny Liverman, uh, the two uh, wounded Marines, uh, were stuck down on the side of Mutter's Ridge. And he heard this shout from the top of the hill, anyone alive down there? And he shouts back up uh, and that he and Johnny Liverman are down there. And Muller and, and another Marine make their way down the side of the hill, grab uh, grab the two Marines and bring them both back. Um, and, and it's a really remarkable story uh, and, and actually sort of even more incredible than the metal citation that uh, we understood before. There was also, uh, as we're alluding to earlier, of course, the Vietnam War was uh, very unpopular back home. But also within the ranks, there was a lot of insubordination. Uh, I think one one line you you said in the in your piece that said uh, someone shot back. Well, what are you going to do to me if I don't do this? Send me to Vietnam. Right. How did how did Mueller, who we know by reputation as being a you know a no nonsense guy, deal with stuff like this? Mueller really found that he embodied the ethos of a marine. That that is uh, really sort of something that you see carry through his leadership style and his life, uh, really up until the present day. You know, I, I was talking with him at one point, uh, and he was explaining to me that he makes his bed every day, and I uh, I started laughing because at that point I'd spent enough time with him uh, to know just how straight laced uh, he is. 
And I said, you know, that's actually probably the least surprising fact I've ever heard about you. And <laughs> he he said, uh, no, no, no. Like, the, uh, you know, I was taught in the Marines to make my bed every morning. And if you think about it, do it. And then you will have already started off the day by accomplishing something. And, and it, you know, for him, you know, it's all about sort of that, you know, that regimen and that discipline to actually get things done. And that's uh, something, of course, we see in in uh, in present day as well. Um, so he eventually um, gets shot in Vietnam, and which is his ticket, uh, not not quite home, but certainly out of combat. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, April 1969 uh, rolls around, his unit back out on patrol, um, ambushed again, and he is actually shot through the leg in the midst of a firefight uh, by an AK-47, um, uh, ultimately medevaced out of the jungle. Um, he, he joked how he didn't even get to make it to a hospital ship. He was treated at a shoreside field hospital uh, for a couple of weeks and then sent back um, and, and ended up finishing out his year-long tour uh, as a staff aide uh, with the Marine commander there in Vietnam. And he just really found, though, even after being shot, that he loved the Marines. Um, he, he met up with his wife and their young daughter in Hawaii during the summer of 1969, um, his daughter had been born while he was posted, uh, while he was deployed overseas in Vietnam. So this was the first time he ever met his oldest daughter mm. and wow. uh, tr tried to tell his wife that he wanted to make a career out of being a Marine. Um, and his wife patiently explained to him that uh, being a Marine was not actually one of the options open to him in their marriage. And... <laughs> He finished out his uh, Marine tour um, it, working at the Marine headquarters uh, in Washington, the sort of famous Washington Marine barracks. And there actually found also that he didn't really love the Marines that much absent combat, that what he had really hmm. enjoyed about the experience was the combat. And he ended up leaving the Marines after the end of his tour. Uh, yeah, the end of his tour, and then uh, sort of began the path that led him to law school and ultimately to the Department of Justice, uh, continuing that life of public service where he spent, you know, what is ultimately almost fifty years of his life working for the U.S. government. What else have we learned from Mueller about? from his time in the Marines, what else did you, what other insights did you get about him? Well, it, it's one of the things that you see carry through um, much of his leadership style, even at the FBI, where he has, uh, he, he was criticized for really his no nonsense leadership style. He, he would quote, sometimes the line from the Crimson Tide movie, we're not here to, we're here to protect democracy, not to practice it. And <laughs> that, that was 
one of the things that he would sometimes quote to aides to cut short a debate on an order that he had given as FBI director. And that he, I think you write that he's he found that frustrating at times where he you know he was used to the 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 discipline the the hierarchy of the Marines where you know your commanding your your commander gives you an order and you follow it. And that does, that's not always the case, certainly with uh, younger generations. Right? Uh, absolutely. Um, and this is something that he uh, uh, has, I think, sort of always struggled with, is that he, uh, he doesn't have much time for uh, emotion and feelings in the workplace. Um, and you would sort of see this, um, one of his chiefs of staff, uh, would, uh, when he was FBI director after 9-11, uh, told me a funny story of how his wife, who Anne, who is just tremendous and has been a, uh, you know, a, a real partner of his. Uh, yes. Still together. together. They're still together. Um, you, you might have seen the photos of the two of them walking out of church together, <laughs> um, you know, the, the weekend after he turned in the Mueller report. And... Uh, she had really been on him after 9-11 to make sure that his staff wasn't burning out um, and that, uh, you know, to sort of check in with them. So his chief of staff tells me the story of how one morning he's sitting at his desk and Mueller calls on the phone from his office down the hall. And he says, you know, good morning, director. What can I do for you? And the director says, how are you? And the chief of staff says, I'm fine, sir. And, and Mueller says, okay, that's all. And that was, you know, that, that was Bob Mueller, was, you know, checking in on how his staff was doing. That was, and as Comey tells you, uh, former FBI director uh, Comey tells you, there were not a lot of Dr. Phil moments with, uh, with. Uh, no, Mueller. not at all. That is uh, not, not one of his strengths as a leader. <laughs> okay, let's fast forward this uh, to the present. Uh, putting on your Mullerologist cap here, was there anything from? And of course, we have not seen the report at this uh, at the time we're recording this. Um, was there anything in the bar translation of the Mueller report, or and how that was delivered? Was there anything there that surprised you? You know, I think. I think a lot of it surprises and puzzles me until we actually understand what Bob Mueller found. Um, and, and I think you drew a really good d distinction there, which is we haven't seen the Mueller report. Uh, what we have only seen is the Barr report on the Mueller report, which uh, Bill Barr is now trying to put the horse back in the barn and say he didn't even mean to be summarizing the Mueller report, which, of course, he you know, really was in that four page letter. Um, but, you know, the idea that Mueller um, didn't come to a traditional prosecutorial decision on obstruction is really puzzling until we see Mueller's own wording. You know, why did he make this decision? How does he frame it? How does he think about it? And, and I think that that's a really important thing to be sorting through. Um, and then also, you know. Yeah, so what, I, would, I want to stop there for a second, Gary. Because uh, that seems to be at odds with everything. And, and again, at this point, we don't know 
what's in the report. But that just that act right there seems at odds with everything we know about Mueller and everything you're writing about, a, a guy who makes decisions, who gets stuff done, who uh, who is very decisive. And that just seems, at this reading, the reading of the bar letter, seems wishy-washy. Uh, absolutely. Uh, with, the, with the sole possible exception, uh, or one of the possible exceptions, being the entirely reasonable decision that if Mueller believes that he is not in a position... Uh, uh, under Justice Department policy to bring a charge against the president to begin with, um, then it seems possible that maybe Mueller was approaching this all as an independent fact finder through the criminal justice system to hand over information uh, for Congress to consider impeachment. That if you if you buy the Justice Department approach that the president uh is not subject to normal uh, prosecution, but that that's ultimately a political question to be dealt with by Congress uh, under the impeachment process, then maybe Mueller was always approaching this as the possibility of doing a, uh, a, a non-traditional prosecutorial decision. Um, it, and then sort of similarly, you know, him saying uh, as part of that, that him going out of his way to say that his report does not exonerate the president uh, is a remarkable statement uh, because, it, it, you know, for, for someone like Bob Mueller, that's about as far as you're probably going to see someone go, uh, you see Mueller go, in terms of what we saw Jim Comey do in the summer of 2016, where he decided not to press charges against Hillary Clinton, but lambasted her publicly. Um, it, it's mm. also interesting, it, it, you know, remember to compare and contrast that statement with the possible collusion side of the equation, where, again, uh, Mueller doesn't say... Uh, Mueller doesn't say that he's totally exonerated the president. He says that he does not find a provable conspiracy uh, involving U.S. persons and the Russian government, um, which is a very high and very specific bar that could mean he found no real evidence. It could also mean that he found a tremendous amount of evidence, but that it fell short of the federal prosecution standard of a charge that you believe that you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt using the standards and uh, of evidence to convict uh, using uh, under a reasonable jury with an 85% certainty. So Mueller could be sitting there saying, I'm 84% sure that the president was engaged in a conspiracy, um, but that doesn't rise to the level of a charge that I can bring. Um, so this is the bed, bed making every day, exacting Marine. Speaking. Exactly. And, and so you can, until we know more and until we know how Mueller himself has phrased some of these decisions, it's incredibly important that we actually, uh, you know, I think withhold judgment on what Mueller found, hmm. 
because, uh, quite frankly, for uh, as you're saying, right now it's simply puzzling. Um, it, it doesn't yeah. really and make it, sense um, given what we know about Bob Mueller. Uh, equally puzzling is why he didn't talk to the president. Uh, do you have any thoughts or insights into that? Yeah. As we're, as we're, in, as we're in the speculation. Yeah. Zone. I mean, solidly into the speculation zone. Um, it, you know, I think that the, you know, the two most obvious reasons, um, or, or I guess, I guess there are three obvious reasons, um, which might very well overlap a little bit. Um, one is, uh, Mueller didn't want to spend that time figuring that it would take, you know, six months to a year to fight that subpoena, uh, in court, um, potentially all the way to the Supreme court. And he didn't want to drag out his investigation by that length of time. Two is, uh, he didn't want to risk setting the precedent that a president could be subject to criminal subpoena, um, it, you know, that he, for whatever reason, wanted to protect the prerogatives of the executive um, and didn't want to create a precedent. The third uh, is maybe he just feels like he never got enough uh, criminal evidence to make him think that it was worth subpoenaing the president, that he was sort of close enough to a criminal charge that it really mattered. Um, but again, all of that is puzzling um, in part because when you're dealing with something like corruption, or uh, sorry, when you're dealing with something like obstruction, uh, mm -hmm. it, the person's mindset is so much of that charge. You know, it's not... Um, a binary, did you do it? Did you not do it? It's what were you thinking while you were doing it? Um, there are plenty of actions that we know um, could be legal, but could still be obstruction depending on what the person was thinking about when they did them. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to imagine that written answers would suffice to get to that question yeah. of mental intent uh, and figure out whether the president met that standard uh, in the obstruction cases, as it's called, corrupt intent. Do you, uh, and, and again, knowing him uh, as, as you do and, and as someone who's researched him, do you think if, if he had a problem with Barr's letter, he would have spoken up because of, you know, we all know how he was famously quiet during this two years of investigation. There were zero leaks coming out of uh, the special counsel's office. But if he if he had a problem with what Barr wrote, would he say something or would the uh, the the, the uh, someone with the respect for authority and um, hierarchy just say, no, that's not my place? Well, I I'm sure he would. I'm sure that he or his team would in some way indicate if Barr was stunningly inaccurate, um, you know, where mm -hmm. Mueller had actually filed, you know, criminal conspiracy charges against the president and Barr was saying that he hadn't, um, you know, something big, factual like that. Okay. Um, the, the much more likely and I think much more... Uh, 
uh, challenging scenario is what we're probably in with Barr, where you can sort of already see Barr trying to walk his letter back a little bit, where Mueller's answer is probably a little bit more nuanced than Barr's letter, um, even though Barr's letter is technically accurate. Barr has presented the facts potentially in the most favorable light for the president. Um, you know, remember, he's only quoted, I think it's 65 words out of Mueller's report. And, <laughs> yes. um, and, and notably, and, you know, I say this as a journalist and you're, you're a journalist, so you sort of understand this. None of them are complete sentences, um, you know, which, which is, no. is noteworthy. Um, which, yes. And the fact that you're not, fragments can tell many stories. Exactly. Partial quotes. Um, you know, lead me to think that even the four places where Barr is directly quoting Mueller, that each of those instances, Mueller is actually even more nuanced, potentially, than Barr is making it out to be. And finally, I want to ask you, obviously, the, the point we're at right now is everybody wants to see the report, as we've, as we've alluded to several times here. Uh, do you get the sense that uh, Mueller... Mueller would want this to be released. And if it's not released, would he speak up and say, we need to see it? Uh, well, I'll, I'll answer a slightly different question. Um, <laughs> thank thank you, Governor Newsom. That's exactly. what he always says. Um, which is, you know, I, I have to assume that Mueller wrote this report with every intention of making as much of it public as he possibly can. With, and what I mean by that is you've seen Barr sort of throw up these uh, these challenges about things that are going to need to be redacted. You know, this what's known as 6E testimonies or grand jury testimony that's protected by the court process. Um, you know, intelligence sources and methods, ongoing investigations, blah, blah, blah. But you have to think that you know, Mueller, every word that they wrote of this somewhere between 300 and 400 page report, they were they wrote it with an eye towards ensuring that it could become public. And that it, when you look at Mueller's previous court filings, particularly the Internet Research Agency indictment and the GRU indictment from last summer, um, those are some of the most insightful signals intelligence documents we have ever seen published in American history. I mean, we learned more about what the NSA is capable of gathering in terms of intelligence from those two documents than, you know, we've learned in years about how the NSA operates. And so, you know, Mueller knows how to work this process of making intelligence information public. He knows this, uh, he, he knows the restrictions around grand jury testimony, which, by the way, in both Watergate and in Whitewater, um, the Justice Department actually went to the courts and got special permission to publish grand jury testimony, um, which is entirely possible and within the purview of yeah. the Department of Justice. You have to ask the, ask the yeah. court. Yeah. And, and so... You, you sort of have to think that Mueller has thought through the, all of these questions and potential objections in advance. And it's not that like last Friday uh, he handed in this 
huge report and Bill Barr is like flipping through it and he's like, oh, Bob, you screwed up. You used all this grand jury testimony. And Bob's been like, oh, man, I can't believe I forgot about that. Like, I guess the report's never going to become public now. Like, that's obviously not what transpired here. And I think that Barr uh, pretending as if this is some sort of massive objection uh, really does uh, try uh, try good faith. Yeah. And you, you don't think there's going to be any problem with the with the FISA requests? Uh, some of the uh, some Republicans are saying, "Well, I really want to see those." I think Marco Rubio was saying that underneath the press the other day. Uh, he was concerned about that, but again, this is uh, this is Mueller's bread and butter. He's not going to. Uh, it, it, it's highly unlikely he would do something nefarious there. Correct? A- absolutely, and I think there's, um, uh, you know, I think part of the challenge in, in a lot of this is. Uh, the FBI set it probably an unfortunate precedent in the Hillary Clinton email investigation when they made public all of that investigative material pretty quickly. Um, You know, you you got, you know, raw FBI 302s. What what are the actual interview statements from potential subjects and witnesses? And, you know, I, I sat down and read, it was about 250 pages of those back in 2016. Um, and, and, you know, that's the raw investigative material that you almost never get uh, and and certainly never get in real time. I mean, it, it's tough to get those things a decade or two later, let alone a few weeks later. And I think that Congress is, is well within its rights to be demanding some of that equivalent material here. Uh, from Mueller's team. Garrett, thank you so much. The story is uh, Mueller's War. It's available on Scrib.com. Thank you so much for being on It's All Political. Oh, my pleasure. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Garrett Graff for being on and talking about his new piece that's on Scrib.com. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for expertly producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you're waiting for the Mueller report or hoping it never sees the light of day. It's All Political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have, is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, Subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garifoli. Thanks.